You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR plays respects to elders, past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis and current hands. affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am oh, to 8.30am. Yeah. Only double. Grab your pants. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. It is Tuesday, the 22nd of March, and we've just hit 7 a.m. My name is Fung, and joining me in the studio today is Carnegie. Good morning. Morning. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I am very well, also. Um, just before the show, Carnegie and I were talking about really cute movies that we've recently watched, um, and... I was just raving about the Disney Pixar movie Turning Red about a young Asian girl who whenever experiences overwhelming emotions turns into a red panda and it's super cute. A giant red panda. A giant red panda, yeah. I think what I really liked about this movie, um, red panda aside obviously, (laughs) is um, just, you know, she and her friends are obsessed with this boy band Quad Four Town. Oh, my God. It, Tell me they're based on BTS. <laughs> well, I think they're actually probably based on, like, Backstreet Boys because the movie is set in 2002. Ooh. And so um, I think the the person who created the movie is, is probably in their, I want to say, early to mid-30s. Mm. But, um, yeah, so Four Town, there are actually five people <laughs> in Four Town, which is really funny. But the the way in which you know, um, especially young girls, their obsession with pop groups. It's taken so seriously in the movie, which I love because it's often dismissed. Absolutely. Um, I was that young girl. Yeah, totally. I was boy band obsessed. Yeah. Some might say I still am. But (laughs) I would say that. (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, if you're looking for just a really easygoing, cute, animated movie, Turning Red, is is pretty fun to watch. Mm. Locking it in. Can't yes, wait. please do. So coming up on today's show, we'll be hearing from Kate Marshall, who is from the Health and Community Services Union, speaking about their reproductive health and wellbeing leave campaign. And this was part of a panel discussion organised by Liberty Victoria's Rights Advocacy Project, um, launching the report that they wrote called A Policy for Equality, Painful Periods as a Workplace Issue. We'll be hearing from Kate first, and then after that uh, we'll be listening to a discussion that I had with Shannon Bethune from uh, RAP, and um, she was one of the um, authors of this report. We'll be talking about the impact of um, menstruation at work and also the idea of, of implementing menstrual leave entitlements for people. 
And then I'll be speaking with Dr. Virginia Mapitzama on the Racism at Work report that was released yesterday by Diversity Council Australia. Um, and then to finish off the show, we will be playing an interview that Jen did with Dr. Jess Ison on sexual violence and harassment at universities. Cool. Well, maybe we'll go to the news headlines right after this message. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast. For our headlines this morning, uh, Senator Lydia Thorpe has been the first to lodge a racism claim on a new register called the Call It Out Register, which is a First Nations register for First Nations people to call out the racism that they experience. Um, It provides basically an alternative way to what currently exists through legal channels and more official channels um, to document the more kind of insidious and subtle racism that Indigenous people are going through every single day. Um, And the individual reports are collected and analysed by the Jambana Institute to inform an annual report, which will help raise awareness and drive systemic change. So I think that, you know, this is a great necessary thing to exist um mm-hmm. you can find out more about call it out or lodge a report at callitout.com.au um yeah i'm a huge fan of alternative uh methods of you know finding this and and keeping this information and analyzing this information outside of kind of the official channels definitely yeah um in slightly less uh good news Um, Hundreds of people, including mothers and their daughters, have been protesting in East London because of um, an incident that happened to a 15-year-old black schoolgirl who was just being known as Child Q to protect her identity. Um, She was subjected to a traumatic strip search by police at her school. Um, Just trigger warning on this story as well. Uh, The incident took place in 2020 at a secondary school in Hackney in North London where her teachers wrongly thought she had cannabis on her during an exam and somehow involved the police um, who strip-searched her and obviously she's a 15-year-old child. This incident is shining a light on police abuse of power in London and the racist and sexist treatment that women and young girls, especially of colour, face um, globally, including what is known as adultification bias, where adults perceive black children in particular as being older than they are because they seem more quote-unquote grown-up or street-wise. Um, That's awful. Yeah, absolutely horrific. I hope that... Um, she does get justice to some level because obviously this should never have happened. Yeah, and no police in schools. Absolutely. <laughs> ever. Um, in other news, and, and this uh, news story contains 
um, where we'll be discussing Islamophobia. So the Islamophobia Register um, Australia recorded a fourfold increase in reports of in-person incidents of anti-Muslim hate, uh, while reports of online incidents were 18 times higher in the two weeks after the 15th of March 2019, which is after um, the attack on the two mosques in Christchurch, Aotearoa. The third report, um, this has been the third report of its kind, um, and Islamophobia in Australia Number three, draws on verified incidents of anti-Muslim hate in Australia in 2018 and 2019. Um, Anti-Muslim hate is also deeply gendered, the data shows, with women comprising 82% of in-person victims, up from 72% in the second report and 68% in the first. Of those women, 85% were wearing a hijab and 48% were alone when these attacks occurred while 15% of them were accompanied by children and most of the perpetrators, um, 74% were men. Um, it's interesting to note as well that security guards or cameras did not take, did not make sorry, Muslims any safer, the data suggested, mm. as there was no meaningful correlation between the existence of cameras and guards and the severity of an incident. I think that's really interesting mm. to note. Um, yeah, it's not about more surveillance or anything like that. It's about just heavy, you know, anti-racism campaigns. Absolutely. And um, doing more to support Muslim people in our community. But, yeah, if you are interested in reading that report, you can look up Islamophobia Register Australia for their third report. And finally, um, just wanted to talk about an, an event that's happening um, on Saturday March 26th, just this Saturday. It's a collaboration between Fight Together for Justice, who we've had on the show before, as well as School Strike for Climate. Um, and we've also talked to someone there before. Uh, they're hosting a family-friendly community evening at Lincoln Square outside the Park Prison. Uh, so from 3pm, you can bring a plain t-shirt or canvas bag to woodblock print and join in on some banner painting as well. Uh, from 6.30pm, there'll be Afghan music, speeches and Q&A with um, a variety of people in the community. There'll also be art projections and it'll all be focused on the intersection of climate and refugee justice. So that's really cool. Um, and please, as always, do not attend this event if you're feeling unwell and make sure that you wear a mask and that you um, social distance. So if you want to find out more, you can go to their Instagram, Fight Together for Justice, um, or School Strike for Climate, Melb. Four is written with the number four. But we can also um, provide a link in our show notes later this morning. But, yeah, that sounds like a really um, important and also fun event for the community. Great. Well, we are now going to uh, play a song for you this morning. This one is called Balance Ton Quoi, which is by the Belgian singer Angèle, um, who I've played before on the show. And um, this song is a, I guess, a response to the Me Too movement in France and in Europe. It's pro-feminism and a fight for women's equality in France and across Europe. Mange mieux quand il est sale Bah faudrait peut-être casser les codes Une fille qui l'ouvre ce serait normal Balance ton quoi Même si 
Tu parles mal des filles, je sais qu'au fond t'as compris Balance ton quoi, un jour peut-être ça changera Balance ton quoi Donc laisse-moi te chanter T'allais te faire en mmh. Moi je passerai pas Bête pour une fille drôle, t'es pas si laide, tes parents et ton frère ça aide. Oh, tu parles de moi, c'est quoi ton problème? J'ai écrit rien que pour toi, le plus beau des poèmes. Laisse-moi te chanter, t'allais te faire en mmh. oh, je poli pour la télé, mais va te faire. Ça changera. Y a plus de respect dans la rue. Tu sais très bien quand t'abuses. Balance ton quoi. Balance ton quoi. Laisse-moi te chanter. Allez te faire. En... Mmh. Moi je passerai pas. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. That was the song Balance Ton Quoi by Belgian artist Angèle. So on the 10th of March, which is Thursday, a couple of weeks ago, Liberty Victoria's Rights Advocacy Project released a report called A Policy for Equality, Painful Periods as a Workplace Issue. To launch the report, they held a panel discussion um, talking about people who suffer from severe menstrual pain and menstrual conditions such as endometriosis and what kind of leave that people should be entitled to. Shannon Bethune, who we will hear from later, facilitated a discussion with Kate Marshall, who's the Assistant State Secretary for HACSU, the Health and Community Services Union, uh, Gemma Caffarella, barrister, and Mary Crooks, Executive Director of the Victorian Women's Trust. Today we'll be playing for you a snippet of this discussion and we're about to hear from Kate Marshall who talks about Haksu's recent campaign for reproductive health and wellbeing leave. Here is Shannon introducing Kate. Firstly, Kate Marshall, who is an Industrial Officer and the Assistant State Secretary of the Health and Community Services Union known as Haksu 
which is a Victorian union supporting over 10,000 members who are working in mental health, disability and drug and alcohol services. Recently, the Haxu launched its Reproductive Health and Wellbeing Leave Campaign, which is one of the first menstrual-related leave campaigns in Australia's history. Tell us about the menstrual and reproductive leave campaign that is being pursued by Haxu. Thanks, Shannon. Um, so Haxu have um, launched um, our women's plan last Friday, um, and part of that plan is um, reproductive health and wellbeing leave. What we've seen um, in previous years, I suppose, around International Women's Day is women have to be, speak louder, you know, voice your opinions, don't be scared to say what you want, demand things. However, this year, I feel like we've seen a real shift. Why should we speak louder? Why should we demand these things when they should already be a given? Um, what we want to do is change the dynamic of the workplace where we don't have to yell and shout to get our views across or to say what we need. We really need to change the foundation of the workplace. And we feel that um, our reproductive health and wellbeing leave may go some way to help do that. Um, we started off talking about women taking leave for the purposes of menstruation and symptoms related to menopause as well. Um, you know, we know that the, the stats show that 45% uh, of women report that dealing with menopausal symptoms lead them to wanting to retire earlier than they would simply because of the side effects that menopause has. Um, similarly, those like Gemma who have regular and systematic pain uh, that they cannot physically get out of bed without vomiting or curling up in a ball, um, people cannot work um, and the embarrassment that women were reporting by saying, I can't go to work today because I've had a really bad night's sleep, I've got the night sweats or I can't get out of bed today because I physically cannot stand up due to my period. Um, we started looking at that and then our members came to us and said, well, what about me? I've got severe endometriosis. What about me? I've got polycystic ovaries. And what about me? I've been going through IVF, injecting all these hormones into my body, having to take huge amounts of time off. How can we be included? So that's why we decided to expand it to reproductive health and wellbeing. So anything to do with your reproductive system, whether it's um, you know, trying to get pregnant through IVF, whether it's you're suffering from endometriosis or polycystic ovary syndrome, which we ended up changing rather than putting in the actual diagnosis in the clause, because we know, and I'm sure Gemma can attest to this, that it takes so long for a woman to be diagnosed with endometriosis and then so long again to be able to get the publicly funded help to treat that condition that um, we didn't want um, people who are suffering from endometriosis to have to wait until they've got official diagnosis for the employer to recognise that they do need reproductive health and wellbeing leave. So we changed those words to women um, or people who suffer um, bleeding or severe pain, um, therefore eliminating the fact that you actually need um, a diagnosis of endometriosis or polycystic ovary syndrome or something similar. Um, and what we wanted to do is Add, have extra days leave because um, as was pointed out previously, um, it is still the case in 2022 that women are still seen as the primary caregiver when it comes to children and also to um, 
for instance, elderly parents or the like. So we use a lot of our carers leave for those things. And we use our sick leave, as Gemma pointed out, when we have, especially in COVID times, where you have a sniffle and you've got to take time off work because, you know, you don't want to infect the whole office. So sick leave's being used for those sorts of things, as it should be. Um, however, going through IVF, having endometriosis, having severe bleeding um, or pain um, due to that are of a reproductive nature, you're not sick. You shouldn't have to take personal leave for that reason. We wanted to induce the, uh, days off where you could have to um, deal with your reproductive health and well-being, um, but not only we also want to step further. It's not only days off, but it's also introducing the flexible working arrangements. So, um, you know, having the ability to maybe start a bit later or having the ability to, you know, have access to a cooler area or, um, you know, um, more breaks so that you can go to the bathroom more regularly, th those sorts of things as well. So um, we're very excited um, that the Victorian government's actually talking to Haksu about this and um, we hope that it does come into public policy. Uh, we know some um, private companies are doing it and doing it well, but we, it should be available to absolutely everyone. Um, and as Mary quite rightly said, we need to break that stigma. There's nothing wrong in going in and saying to your boss, I've had severe bleeding. I can't, I can't come in. I'm not working today. We really need to break that stigma. There's nothing shameful about what our bodies do naturally. Um, and we really want to um, break down those walls and just make it part of an everyday um, entitlement that you get. So when, you know, I've got two daughters, when my daughters enter the workplace, they know they're going to get long service leave, annual leave, personal leave and reproductive health and wellbeing leave. And I don't want ever want my daughters to be ashamed of the fact that they menstruate, um, nor should they be. And we really need to break down um, that narrative right here and right now with this generation. We just heard from Kate Marshall, Assistant State Secretary at the Health and Community Services Union, speaking about the campaign to introduce leave entitlements for people who need to take time off to manage reproductive health issues. We'll be back with more on this topic after these messages. Bisexual Alliance Victoria is a not-for-profit organisation dedicated to equality and justice for multi-gender attracted people, including bi, pan, regardless of label or no label at all, their partners and allies. Bisexual Alliance runs discussion groups in person and online. The group offers a safe and fun space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your sexual identity and provide peer support. Bisexual Alliance is especially keen to hear from multi-gender attracted people in regional and rural Victoria. Donations of $2 or more to Bisexual Alliance are now tax deductible. For more information, visit our website at bi-alliance.org, email info at bi-alliance.org or find us on Facebook or Twitter. A 3CR supporter. have a few children's picture books or footy boots that your kids have outgrown but want to find them a loving home? Well, drop them in at 3CR and put them in the books and boots bin. 
Books and Boots regularly sends pre-loved children's picture books and sports footwear to remote and regional First Nations communities and children across the country. Contact us at Books and Boots or go to the website www.booksandboots.org.au We love a good book. I'm Jane Clifton, author, musician, actor, marriage celebrant, author of The Address Book. I've always been fond of 3CR, and not just because they played the song by my band stiletto, Woman in Trouble, 50,000 times. I was grateful for that, but that was a few years ago. Here I am again after all these years, and so is 3CR, still supporting musicians and writers and people with ideas to share. Keep going, 3CR. You're listening to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. It's 7.25 and we're now going to hear from Shannon Bethune, who is a law graduate working for the United Workers' Union. She participated in Liberty Victoria's Rights Advocacy Project and published uh, the report that we mentioned earlier on menstrual leave. The report was launched a week ago at an online event that she chaired and I caught up with Shannon yesterday to talk more about the impact of menstruation at work and what rights that menstruating people should have. Welcome to 3CR Breakfast, Shannon. Could you please start by telling us more about Rights Advocacy Project? Uh, Yeah, of course. So Liberty Victoria, who are a human rights and civil liberties organisation that have been around since the 30s, they coordinate a rights advocacy project, which has an annual intake of about 20 or so uh, law students and law graduates who uh, they're assigned to a different group. So I was lucky enough to be assigned to the equality team and we decided to research and uh, write a report on menstrual leave. Um, There is currently very little research into the impact of menstruation at work. Could you take us through the survey that you conducted for this report? Uh, Yes, um, that's the predominant reason why we decided to do our own research. Unfortunately, there was little research available to demonstrate the impact of menstrual pain and symptoms on study and employment. Um, So we conducted our own uh, survey and we had 484 respondents, which was uh, a pretty decent amount of people since the uh, survey was only open for a couple of weeks. Um, The questions that we we asked varied, um, as did the participants. There were uh, a number of different people from different age groups, uh, employment status and uh, industry that they worked in. Um, So we had a pretty uh, diverse uh, survey pool, which was really great. We had a number of um, different questions that we put to the participants, like what kind of impact has menstrual pain uh, and conditions had on your employment and study? And we found that um, nearly 90% of survey respondents said that menstruation has had an impact in some capacity, which varied quite substantially uh, on their work and study. Um, We had nearly 50% of Respondents say that they were required to take unpaid leave to deal with menstrual pain and symptoms, with just under 50% also saying that they've had to power through shifts to uh, avoid any financial detriment from having to take time off work. 
Mm. The fact that so many people responded to the survey in such a short amount of time just really tells you how passionate people are about this issue. And Mm -hmm. reading the report, I related so much to a lot of the anecdotes that were provided, which, yeah, just tells you how widespread this issue is, but also um, is sort of validating in a way because you know that you're not alone. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I think that was like, you know, going back on the report, just reading it now, um, that's one of my favourite parts of it is the inclusion of anecdotes. It's not so common that in reports that we really centre anecdotes of people with lived experiences. So we're really grateful for, you know, nearly 500 people taking part in it. And yeah, I'm I'm glad you felt validated reading through it as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes it can kind of feel like we're uh, being culturally gaslit. Um, So yeah, it's nice um, that, yeah, you felt less alienated um also with the yeah passion of individuals wanting to um participate in the research we found that nearly 35 percent of the respondents said that they've actually got a diagnosable menstrual condition which is greater than um the general population so the research um findings we're no way trying to generalize or universalize that to the general australian population but yeah it is really interesting um that of the survey participants Um, those who experienced a um, condition were more inclined to participate. Mm. And so what were some of the common themes that emerged from the survey? Like you said before that you had a whole host of respondents who came from different backgrounds, different age groups, different industries, but what were some of the commonalities between their experiences? A lot of the respondents mentioned uh, their, their fear, whether real or perceived, about talking to their bosses about menstruation, found that even even where workers had female bosses, they were still intimidated um, and very reluctant to talk about their menstrual pain to their bosses. We also found, um, yeah, a concern around job security. Uh, One thing that is very alarming is that the respondents who were casual, um, yeah, they were more inclined to power through shifts and not take time out because of the concern that their bosses just aren't gonna call them back if they need to take unpaid leave. Mm. And, of course, that is just a reflection of a, of a bigger issue when it comes to the rights of, of casual workers. Mm-hmm. There are some countries, though, that have already implemented menstrual leave policies. Could you please give us an overview of what's already out there? Yeah, so that was something that was quite surprising in the uh, initial research phases of the project was that there were some countries that had already implemented it in their labor standards, kind of like our Fair Work Act. So countries like Japan, um, Taiwan, South Korea, and Indonesia, they've got varied um, models of menstrual leave, both paid and unpaid. So for example, I think Japan has had it since the 1940s, um, but they uh, it's unpaid. And as far as I'm concerned that the uh, uptake is quite low, I think less than 1% of workers have actually uh, utilized unpaid menstrual leave during their employment Um, in jurisdictions like South Korea where there's uh, paid menstrual leave the uptake is a little higher but interestingly enough the uptake is reduced um, I think by four percent between 2013 and 2017. Um, I'm not quite sure what factors explain uh, the reduced uptake Um, yeah it was certainly not what I was expecting but I think the general factors explaining um, reduced uptake of fear of harassment, fear of discrimination, and 
broader menstrual stigma. Yeah, I mean, the report mentions quite early on that that menstruation is still very much a taboo and and we don't really talk about it in plain language um, and Mm -hmm. talk about it openly. So uh, to feel comfortable talking about the pain that you get when you have your period is you can understand why people are too scared to to communicate about that at work. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And I think the important thing about um, our menstrual leave report and campaign in general is that it's not simply an awareness raising campaign. It's we're trying to implement something that uh, is material and can tangibly assist workers, um, which can have an impact then to address menstrual stigma, um, albeit in an indirect way. It's not the main purpose, but um, yeah, at our panel a couple of weeks ago, Mary Crooks, who's the director of the Victorian Women's Trust, and they've got a policy of paid um, menstrual leave. She was talking about how uh, even at her uh, work that workers are way more inclined to talk about um, menstruation um, than they were prior to the implementation of the policy, which is really encouraging. And, and so speaking of which, how would menstrual leave fit into existing leave entitlements? I think there's a few different options for pushing for uh, menstrual leave. So we could implement menstrual leave through the Fair Work Act, which is quite unlikely given that we've got a coalition government. I can't imagine um, uh, a majority of politicians in um, parliament uh, voting for menstrual leave um, in the Fair Work Act, but that's certainly one avenue. Um, The avenue that uh, I personally am more for is through uh, the implementation of menstrual leave via enterprise agreements. I think it is uh, a really important place for workers to find out about enterprise agreements in general and to also, um, yeah, realise their power um, in collectivising. So not just around menstrual leave, but other issues too. Um, So, yeah, join your union, speak to your colleagues and push for menstrual leave that way. But... um, yeah, we're also aware that uh, some companies have implemented it via uh, policies, but policies can be revoked, they can be amended, oftentimes without having to consult workers or um, seek a majority of vote, um, which is quite different to enterprise agreements. They can also be implemented through modern awards. Um, the Fair Work Commission, who would need to review the awards, would need to um, propose and um, yeah push for that amendment, uh, which yeah, I'm not confident that that would happen anytime soon. Um, but there's also the flexibility angle of menstrual leave as well. So in the Fair Work Act, there's uh, flexible work arrangements, but um, you have to meet certain criteria. So, for example, you have to have a disability. Um, so if you experience menstrual pain and it's not severe dysmenorrhea, which is another word for menstrual pain, or a diagnosable condition, you're probably not going to be able to ask your boss for flexible work arrangements because you need to meet that definition of um, disability, mm. which is similar to what we've got in Victoria. We have the Equal Opportunity Act, which is an anti-discrimination um, statute. If you've got a disability, employers need to make reasonable adjustments as long as you can still perform the genuine and reasonable or inherent requirements of the role. Um, as you can imagine, if you're asking for reasonable adjustments, bosses are probably then going to say, well, hang on, can you actually perform the inherent requirements of the role? Um, uh, which then, uh, yeah, calls it to question your job security and it's mm. it's not an ideal path. And again, it um, brings into question, well, do you have a disability um, that meets the definition under the Equal Opportunity Act? 
So we think that even though there are avenues for workers to follow, it's plainly inadequate. Um, so we need something additional. Definitely. Um, just touching on what you were saying about flexibility around the workplace, COVID has taught us a lot about flexible and inclusive workplaces, especially for people with chronic illnesses or living with a disability. How will having comprehensive menstrual leave policies benefit everyone in the community? I think um, one of the impacts that we were talking about earlier is addressing menstrual stigma more generally, which is an indirect impact of um, such entitlements. But I think um, it doesn't start and end with menstrual leave, and I'm not um, saying that menstrual leave is the most important additional leave entitlement we should be pushing for. I'm hoping that it's like a bit of a starting point for workers to realise that we can ask for uh, additional entitlements. We don't just have to deal with what's on offer, which is inadequate. Um, workers can, uh, yeah, demand through enterprise agreement negotiations and other means of additional types of leave entitlements like chronic disability leave or uh, additional parental and carers leave or uh, more COVID leave or domestic violence leave. Um, so, yeah, we really hope that um, people can realise that there's so much more that we can be pushing for um, and collectivising around. Finally, if there are people who would like to raise this issue at work, how should they go about this? I think um, presenting it to your colleagues as a, uh, a viable option is really important. I think joining your union is also really important too and giving that feedback um, back to uh, union officials then remind them that this is a bottom-up issue, this can be a member-led uh, issue. Um, on our panel last week, uh, Kate Marshall from the Health and Community Services Union spoke to uh, menstrual leave as something that they're pushing for in enterprise agreements, which is, is really exciting. Um, it definitely sounds like a bottom-up approach um, to this issue as it, as it should be. Um, so, yeah, I would advise uh, workers to join your union, talk to other workers and for them to join their union, talk to your union about um, negotiating with your employer and if 50% or more of you are interested in negotiating for an enterprise agreement you should consider doing so because having a having conditions that are greater than the award is something that um yeah is definitely worthy of fighting for thank you so much Shannon for for joining us this morning on 3CR breakfast if there are any people out there who want to read the report we can have a link in our show notes to that report so people can check it out later this morning. But yeah, thanks again for joining us this morning. Thanks so much for having me. And that was Shannon Bethune from Liberty Victoria speaking to us about their recent report, Policy for Equality, Menstrual Pain as a Workplace Issue. Um, I personally found that report incredibly interesting. And like I said in the interview, <clears throat> very validating as well as someone who menstruates because they include all these anecdotes from people who have just pushed through the pain and just kept working, even though they've been experiencing, you know, um, severe bleeding and um, cramps and, and other other symptoms. So, yeah, just to know that you're not alone, I think, is huge. Yeah, and I also find it quite <laughs> telling that we're in um, 2022 and we're still, like, it almost at the start of these conversations, yeah. it feels like. It actually does feel like the start. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I remember being in school, like, as a child, getting my period for the first time, and it was just 
so bad and this was in india so yeah it was like you couldn't talk about it mm. you had to like stay home from school and people be like why didn't you come to school and be like i don't know i was sick <laughs> and like it's like mm. the adult version of that is yeah. actually in a way yeah yeah and it's great to hear that like endometriosis is being discussed more openly but i felt like that was also that started quite late too yeah um i mean i know people who have endometriosis have been have been really been at the forefront of these discussions but in terms of just mainstream education and awareness um of these menstrual conditions absolutely yeah just before our next interview mm. i also wanted to touch on the fact that it is um quote unquote cultural diversity week at a lot of workplaces yep. this week uh as a quote unquote culturally diverse person in <laughs> predominantly white workspaces i find this week quite um difficult to get through mm. uh you know there's this like weird spotlight on me i feel sometimes and uh you know I went for example I went to a holy celebration this weekend um which is a Hindu festival of colors and I have henna on my hand and now I'm like I'm going to go to work and that's really going to <laughs> prompt a few questions this week I should yeah, yeah you're the um, spokesperson for for quote unquote cultural diversity <laughs> yeah <laughs> ask ask honey all your questions <laughs> <laughs> please don't <laughs> um But yeah, I just wanted to kind of talk about how that kind of thing is often more harmful. Mm. Um I know that sometimes there are good intentions and it can be uh it, there can be elements that are nice in the workplace, but I feel like it's um a way to almost divert from the real issues which Definitely. are more to do with racism and and justice and less to do with um celebrating culture. Mm, mm for yeah. sure. I think I think you're right. I think um yeah, there are still so many ongoing effects from colonization that then having a day in the colony to celebrate different cultures just seems doesn't really feel right, does it? Not really, no. no. <laughs> well, we are going to play a song now um Carnegie do you want to introduce that I feel like they're your favorite band I feel yeah I love them so much <laughs> um this is Camp Cope's new single Jealous which has just it's so good I I won't say anymore here it is
So that was Camp Cope with Jealous. Uh, next up, we will be speaking with Dr. Virginia Mapedzahama. Dr. Virginia is from the Diversity Council Australia, which is an independent, uh, not-for-profit body who provides research, events, and programs, curated resources and advice to a community of member organizations. Uh, she is also a scholar in uh, critical race, gender, and intersectional feminism, and her research focuses on understanding the social construction of all categories of difference in the context of migration, diaspora, race, racism, and ethnicity. Um, welcome to the show today, Dr. Mapadzama. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being here. So... Uh, yesterday, the um, DCA released a report um, which looks into racism in the Australian workplace. Can you just start us off by giving us a little bit of background on the project that led to this report? Okay, thank you. Uh, thank you. So, um, well, actually, this, this report was really, um, I guess, the impetus for it was um, request from our members who were coming to us in the context of all, you know, all the global events that happened in 2020, which were, which were fueled by um, George Floyd's death in the U.S., and that um, kind of gave momentum again to the Black Lives Matter movement. And um, within that movement, there were like lots of calls for um, organizations to do better. Um, you know, and really address racism and racial inequalities within organization, organizations because um, that's where racism kind of plays out the most, like racial inequalities, mm. um, you know, economic inequalities due to racism play, play out the most within the context of organizations. So uh, we found that our members um, were coming to us and um, asking, well, look, we want to do better, but how do we do it? Because um, we can't find anything. In Australia, so as DCR, we um, uh, sorry, as DCA, we um, went around, did what we do best, which is do research. We looked around, trying to find for um, trying to find an organisational tool that um, Australian specific that looks at our um, uh, specific Australian um, context, our history, um, and we couldn't find anything. So what we did was okay. We thought we will actually need to develop. Um, an evidence-based tool that's specific to Australia that can guide organizations on how to deal with racism. Because what we were finding as well was there's quite a bit of stuff in Australia on cultural diversity and cultural inclusion in, in workplaces and cultural competence and um, that kind of stuff. And while that stuff is really important in its own Right, it's it's very good. We need to kind of focus on that because cultural diversity is an area that, of diversity that we need to focus on. But if but to look at it in order to address racism, it's not the correct entry point. We can't use culture as an entry point to talk about or to discuss racism because it doesn't work because culture isn't the same thing as race. And so what we thought was we needed to do, come up with, with an evidence-based tool that specifically talks about race and racism. Because if we want to talk about racism, we've got to talk about racism and not culture and not, um, you know, 
harmony or social cohesion or any of those other things that we tend to focus on a lot in Australia. And not that there's anything wrong with those things. Uh, like I said, we just need to focus on race and racism if we want to talk about racism. So that's what we did. And we came up with this um, report. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that point is actually super important that the language around how we discuss this, especially within the workplace, uses kind of more uh, passive, vague terms, you know, like mm-hmm. like cultural diversity. And, you know, at the end of the day, is that more harmful than good? Because you're kind of not, you're taking the onus off racism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, yeah, I think that's that's really really um great that this report has kind of highlighted that. Um another really great thing that this report has highlighted is the importance of talking about anti-racism versus non-racism, um which sort of differentiates passive attitudes against the general concept of racism versus more deliberate action. Can you tell us a bit more about what anti-racism work can look like? Absolutely. So, yes, and you you bring up a very important point because another thing that we found um, in our in our research as well is that we tend people tend to kind of confuse or conflate non-racism with anti-racism. And like you said, non-racism tends to be that passive kind of the passive recognition of um, yes, racism exists, um, and it needs to be, and it might need even. Um, be aware that, yes, it exists and it needs to be eliminated and even know what it looks like, right? But it doesn't do anything. And we're not saying, again, that that there's anything wrong with that. What we're simply saying is that it's a good starting point. We can start there, but we need to do something else. So anti-racism is an actual actively, like, choosing to say, hey, we see racism and we're actively standing up for it. We're actually challenging it. And in in, in workplaces, it can take various, Uh, forms there's quite a lot of things that we can do and the first thing really is literally just that making that deliberate conscious um you know choice to say we are actually acting against racism we are choosing to eliminate racism we're putting it on the table right here it is on the table because that's what we, we were hearing from our survey as well people saying well racism is not even on anybody's table it's not on anybody's agenda so taking that conscious effort as organizations to say we see it we are hearing from people who experience it that it's happening in organizations and we're putting it on the table so making that conscious choice to act the other thing is um, creating that racially conscious mind mm-hmm. so really taking as we do in our report taking racism as the point of entry for addressing racial inequality so actually saying we are talking about racism here we understand there's all these other things there's bullying there's um, you know there's there's other forms of um, diversity that we need to focus on there's you know like we said culture everything it's all there but we're developing a racially conscious mind we're actually addressing racial inequality and not um and, and like as a, as a thing as an entity in and of its own right and also the other thing um that anti-racism um can look like in organization is actually taking accountability so organizations kind of going we are accountable we are responsible for doing this again you put it then you put it on the table 
um, for individuals and organization, anti-racism can start with that reflective process. Um, and I actually call it reflexivity rather than just reflect, re- being reflective because reflexivity is that kind of next-level reflection, which is not just, again, it's not just passive kind of like looking at a moment in time and kind of going what happened there. Reflexivity is really being very critical. What is my own part? What part do I play mm-hmm. in this system of racism? And so it's really kind of really taking, an, again, an active self-assessment. So this becomes part of, um, you know, our psyche, part of the organizational psyche to kind of think, what is my part in all of this, right? So being very reflexive. I think most importantly, what anti-racism in organizations looks like is that it takes um, it takes kind of systemic racism also as its starting point. So, again, another thing that we found in our work was that a lot of the times um, race people kind of stop at interpersonal forms of racism. So that racism that happens um, between people, you know, like when someone calls someone, somebody else a racial slur, you know, that's the kind of racism we're still mm. looking for in organizations. But a lot of the times it's actually racism is, is systemic really embedded in uh, policies and practices and procedures, those things that we don't see. Anti-racism looks at all of that. It looks to kind of say racism is embedded in all in all of this in our systems in which which and policies which may look like they're racially neutral, right? So so like um this applies to everybody. And it in practice when you actually look at it, some of the policies don't actually apply to everybody equally, because when you when you apply to everybody, they can actually be discriminatory. So anti-racism actually looks at that as well, that systemic nature of racism. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I've definitely experienced that sort of subtle uh, systemic racism that exists in workplaces here, and it is absolutely crucial for accountability on a kind of individual level as well as organizational level for you know any real change to actually actually happen um the report also found that you know candidates are more likely to be hired if they have western sounding names or australian accents and that you know quote unquote typically western traits and kind of leadership styles like extroversion and confidence are more valued by managers is this because, you know, we still view whiteness and white culture as the default? Yeah, um, well, this is, I mean, the research shows us this, right? Right. Like, um, even in Australia, we've done research. There's several pieces of research that show this, that um, looked at, um, sent out like several, um, you know, CVs, exactly the same thing, um, and just tweaked a bit, just the names. Um, and found that, um, like you're saying, that people with um, Anglo-sounding names, with white-sounding names, um, they got a lot more, um, you know, the, 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 they were invited to interviews at a higher rate than people with um, non-Anglo-sounding names. So this is something that, that's real, that the research is showing us is happening. Um, and again, like you're saying, the core of all of this is whiteness. Um, and But in Australia, we don't tend to kind of talk about those things like whiteness seems to be um this invisible thing that we don't we're not actually conscious about it and that's how whiteness works in general anyway it's invisibility that it's not something that we talk about um um at all and yet it actually impacts um even our, our racial psyche our unconsciousness 
that it tends to be, as you said, um, when it comes to hiring managers, it might not even be a conscious thing, right? It can mm-hmm. be something that you're just like, well, I don't know, you know, my pizza, my what's that, right? Like, where is that coming from? Um, and so you find, you find, unlike you, I have gone into interviews where my, the response has been, well, you're not a cultural fit to the organization. Mm-hmm. And then you ask, well, um, what does that even mean? Like, what does what cultural fit? Can you explain to me what you actually mean by that? So that's the other thing that we're talking about. Um, you know the, um, you know the the language, but also the policies. When that's said to someone of of color, to a person of color, you're not a cultural fit because you, um, you know, to you you experience that as something that's um, racist. Uh, especially if someone can't actually explain to you why you're not a cultural fit. And that's if you get to the interview stage. But a lot of the times you find you're actually even being discriminated at that, um, um, you know, at that first stage, Western-sounding names. Um, there tends to be um, preference for people with, like, no discernible religious or cultural background. So mm-hmm. that neutrality, again, is what they're looking for. There tends to be... Um, people who um, can self-promote in interviews, again, which is a, an aspect of whiteness that doesn't necessarily exist in other cultures or other races that um, people can, you know what I mean, like people can come to the um, to the interview and they can do that kind of self-promotion. So we found that there's this kind of like, you're not like us, implicit things happening, and the not like us is really you're not white like us. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Unfortunately, it's something a lot of uh, people of colour living here and working here are quite familiar with. Um, so what changes are you hoping to see from following this research and from this report? Right. Um, well, we're hoping that this report at least starts conversation. Like this is our, our whole, if we at least start the conversations about racism in Australian organizations, then I think we've, we, we're all on our way to really uh, um, getting change. So like you said, our report uses the language of race and racism, mm-hmm. and we're hoping to kind of, at some point, um, getting that to be mainstream, right? So we, we this same way that we talk about cultural diversity, that we can start to talk about racial diversity, and we understand the differences. Yes, they have overlaps, and yes, they, um, um, you know, they may have some things in common. Like someone can be racially diverse and culturally diverse, but some people can be racially diverse but not culturally diverse, mm-hmm. right? Because they've grown up in Australia, they speak only English, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, um, we 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 are hoping that all of those changes can start to happen because this report has put racism on the, on the agenda in Australian organisations. And we're also taking our specific Australian context um, with this report. So we're hoping that organisations will see it, they can recognise what we're talking about, and they're not going to kind of go, you know, sometimes you pick up this thing from, the, from North America or from the UK, and you're like, OK, this makes sense but this is not what we do in Australia. So we're hoping that when people pick up our report, when our um, our members are reading the report, they can kind of see themselves in the report in the way that this is very Australian-specific. One of the things that we we kind of pull throughout our report, there's two main things. One of them is racial literacy, that if 
you look at the front of our report, we really set up um, the report by in introducing some of these concepts that speak to race, that speak to racism. We introduce the language and we do so at a very accessible level so people can start to kind of be um, comfortable as, as much as we can, be comfortable with using that language, be comfortable with... Um, and then once we do that, we can... We're increasing our racial literacy. So now we know what racism is. Now we know what racism can look like in organizations. And we start to move away from denying racism, from deflecting racism and all of those things. So we're, we're hoping we start the conversations and people can start to take conscious efforts to increase their racial literacy within organizations. And a way to increase racial literacy and a way to address racism, and I've said this, this, this has been my life's work, trying to say, hey, we've got to listen to people with lived experiences mm. of racism. Let's listen to what they tell, they're telling us about their experiences. Because once we do that, right, the narrative changes. The narrative becomes... Oh, moves from, hey, racism is a very difficult concept to understand, to, oh, hold on, we know what it looks like. Hold on, we know what it, we, we, how we can address it. Because people with lived experiences, as you were saying, you have been through this in organizations as well. So if, organiz- if those organizations had come to you and said, hey, tell us about your experiences of racism, you would very clearly articulate that, isn't mm. it? Because you, you're going through it. So those are kind of like two, the two things that we emphasize, uh, um, building up racial literacy in organizations as a way to start understanding and addressing racism. And in that process, process sensing the experiences of people with, um, um, with, with um, who's experience who have experienced racism because they're the ones with the we call it experiential expertise in our report um they have the experiential expertise on what racism looks like what it um you know how to address it and all of that kind of stuff um one of the things that i always say is if we really want to know about poverty right if we want to know what poverty feels like what it looks like and all and all of that stuff what do we do? We don't go to Elon Musk. We don't do that, do we? Like, no. He's not going to tell us what poverty looks like, um, at least not in his current position um, as, as a, the, one of the richest people in the world. But we do go to people who are, who are living in poverty, who we know, for example, may be experiencing homelessness, may be experiencing um, you know, abject poverty. Um, they can tell us what poverty looks like. And we're very... Um, we're quick to do that, right? Like for other matters, for other subject matters. If we want to know about poverty, we'll go to people who are experiencing it. If we want to know about, you know, um, gender issues, we'll go to women. So we know that. But racism tends to be one of those issues where we shy away from going to people who are experiencing it or we kind of silence those voices. So uh, this is what we're hoping my report will, will, will do. We'll start those conversations. Yeah, and I think uh, what you've said about it being specifically Australian is also really important because, you know, I do see sometimes that frameworks from America or, you know, Europe or elsewhere are kind of just applied here and they don't necessarily work because Australia has a very specific history of colonization and violence against Aboriginal people and Mm -hmm. um, a very specific history of migration and what 
those different waves of migrants went through. So mm-hmm. um, the Australian mm-hmm. context is super important as well. So thank you Correct. for highlighting that. Um, where can our listeners go to find out more about the report? Well, they can they can go on on our website. Um, there's a link on our website, and if they are members, they can go um, to our members um, site, and they can get access to the synopsis report and the full report. But for people who are not members, we do have an infographic that kind of gives an overview of what our report is is about. But we do encourage people to become members um, so they can. Um, get the access to the full report and the synopsis report, as, as well as other resources as well. We have a lot of other resources on our website that um, people can use in conjunction with this report to understand more and unpack what's going on with um, racism in workplaces. Amazing. Um, unfortunately, that's all we have time for this morning, but I just want to say thank you so much for joining us this morning and taking us through that Um and for the report as well that you've co-authored. So um, for anyone wanting to find out more, you can go to dca.org.au. Thank you for joining us this morning, Virginia. Thank you very much for having me. So that was Dr. Virginia Mapedzahama talking to us about Diversity Council Australia's report into racism in the workplace. We'll be right back after this. A system based on profits, inequality and oppression cannot deliver a society that works for ordinary people. Capitalism has to go. During this global pandemic, millions of lives have been sacrificed by the let it rip strategy, all for the sake of the capitalist economy. The far right is on the offensive, in parliament and on the streets, and all the while, our planet continues to burn. Now, more than ever, we need revolution. We need socialism. This April, The Marxism 2022 conference will bring together revolutionaries and radicals from across the globe to address the pressing need to fight the right and rebuild the left. Talks, discussions, film screenings and interviews will cover the history of working class struggle and burning questions for socialists today. Get your ticket to the biggest left-wing conference in Australia at marxismconference.org. We have a world to win. Marxism 2022 is a 3CR supporter. Get your radical summer attire sorted. New stock of 3CR Radical Radio tees has just landed, featuring the iconic antenna design by artist Emily Floyd. As well as our basic black, we have a range of great pastel and primary colours in a variety of sizes. And for those radical little people, we have a short run of kids' tees available too. For just $30 for adults or $20 for kids, you can get yourself a local, ethically manufactured and printed tea that supports Radical Community Radio. We can send one out in the post and there's Click and Collect from our studios at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or if you're fully vaxxed, you can drop in and browse our t-shirt rack during business hours. To purchase online, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. We're nearing the end of our show. Um, we do have one great interview left that Jen did with um, Dr. Jess Isson about sexual violence at universities. Um, 
so far this morning on the show, we've heard from Kate Marshall from uh, on Haksu's Reproductive Health and Wellbeing Leave campaign, um, followed by Shannon Bethune on menstrual pain being a workplace issue, and we just heard from Dr. Virginia Mapetsahama on the Racism at Work report released yesterday by Diversity Council Australia. Um, thank you for listening to Tuesday Breakfast, and as always, after this interview, stay tuned for Women on the Line. Now we are joined by Dr. Jess Eisen. Jess is a researcher at the Judith Lumley Centre, the coordinator of the Latrobe Violence Against Women Network, and she also lectures and tutors in gender studies, criminology, and legal studies. Jess is on the show today to discuss a recent article published in The Conversation, which analyzes the Change the Course report, which was published five years ago, which was set out to end sexual violence and harassment at universities. The article focuses on what work has been done since the report and what is still left for unis to do to make campuses safe. Just warning, there is a bit of a trigger in this conversation as we discuss sexual violence and harassment. If this is not for you right now, tune back in in the next 20 minutes. Thanks so much for joining us, Jess. Thanks for having me. So obviously, as I've just explained, you've recently co-written an article for The Conversation analysing the Change the Course report, which was published five years ago, and, you know, what it got right and where there is still a lot of work to do to end uh, sexual violence and harassment on campus. Um, I think a good place to start, just for to give some context to our listeners, is, you know, what exactly is the Change the Course report that was written in 2017 and uh, why was it commissioned in the first place? Yeah, the Change the Course report was commissioned um, by the um, 39 universities um, and was done by the Australian Human Rights Commission. The report uh, was really in response to a lot of groundswell activism um, overseas and in Australia, uh, pointing out the rates of sexual violence and harassment on university campuses. Um, And so due to that um, amazing activism, um, the unis came together and said, let's let's actually find out what's happening because they realised they didn't have uh, clear evidence um, on what on the rates of sexual violence and harassment on university campuses. So there's, they did a survey that was conducted in 2016 um, and that then the results of that survey were put into the, what is called the Change the Course Report. Cool. Uh, that gives a pretty clear overview. And would you be able to just explain what were the findings of this report? Yeah, look, the findings were damning. Um, it showed some really high rates of sexual violence and harassment on campus. So um, in terms of the prevalence of sexual harassment, they found that 51% of students um, had been sexually harassed in the previous year on at least one occasion, and 21% of uh, students were sexually harassed on a university campus, and in, a, in a university setting, sorry, and that included um, on campus as well as um, travelling to and from campus, so public transport, um, and then uh, technology-based harassment as well as um, during university employment, um, or at university events. Um, and they also found that in terms of um, sexual assault, 6.9% of students had been sexually assaulted um, in, in at least one occasion in 2015 or 16, and with 1.6 reporting that that happened in a university setting. 
And then when we break the data down more, we see that um, in particular, bisexual students had quite high rates as well as um, um, gay, lesbian and homosexual students as the terminology used in the report. Um, similarly for trans students as well, there was really high rates across both sexual harassment and sexual assault. They um, didn't have a large enough sample size um, for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students nor students with disability, with disabilities, but the rates that the reporting that they did have from those students um, did show quite high rates, indicating that those students um, have um, potentially high rates of sexual violence and harassment. And look, this reflects um, other studies. This isn't um, singular to universities, but we do know that universities are what we might call a hotspot for sexual violence and harassment. I wanted to dwell on that, actually. Um, why? And I know that your research focuses a lot on uh, sexual violence and harassment and exactly why do you think universities you know show such damning data like this um I think one of the things to consider is when we look at um, what came out of the study was um a lot of the um perpetrators were known to the individual um and so what we're looking at is um you know that because um universities I think universities are kind of spaces where you're there for study you're there for um, sometimes work and you might be there for recreation so they're quite an interesting spot they're quite unique in that way um, and then um, a lot of students um, might be between the ages of 18 and 25 so when we're looking at those students um, they might be out um, drinking so alcohol is a really big factor um, they a lot of the students um, might hold um, negative views around like ha have negative gender attitudes beliefs around male entitlement to sex because the majority of the perpetrators were men. Um, and so it really reflects actually the broader issues. Universities are unique because also we might, another area is um, students living on campus um, when we see high rates for students living on campus. Another issue really is the issue around power and power imbalances that we see really manifest in that university setting. So one example of that is um, postgraduate students and a postgraduate student might be doing a master's or a PhD. So they're gonna have a supervisor, which can be a very, um, which can be an amazing um, relationship, but can lead to really strong power imbalances because that person might also be teaching for that, uh, for their supervisor. So that's where their employment comes from and they're a casual worker. Um, and so they need that money to survive. Um, so we see some really problematic behaviour for postgraduate students um, because of those power imbalances. So I think when we're looking at sexual violence and harassment on university campuses, we have to look at power and how power functions in those spaces um, and how the university, the way that it's set up, really encourages power hierarchies. And we know that sexual violence and harassment isn't about sex, isn't about pleasure, it's about power and enacting power over another. And so to address this issue, one of the top things we need to consider is how to undo power hierarchies in the university space. Yeah, yeah. And that's a really, really good point. I'd love to get into it uh, definitely later on in the conversation. Um, so obviously this report comes out in 2017. Uh, what exactly is the university's response and what kind of practices and policies do they introduce to try to make campus safer? Yeah, so um, my research looked at this very question, but specifically around primary prevention. Um, so that means um, uh, programs or approaches that address the root causes of sexual violence and harassment. 
But um, along the way in my research, I have come across a lot of what their other responses are. So one of the first things they did was set up, most universities set up a response um, team uh, called usually um, Respect Now Always or something like that following from Universities Australia, which is that peak body in Australia. So they set up um, a unit, a kind of a team who uh, met perhaps quarterly to um, and, and came up with an agenda at their specific university. One of the first things I had to do after that was really look at respond, response pathways. So what really came out of the Change the Course report was the very low reporting rates. Um, and we see this anyway broadly. Um, victim survivors rarely uh, report to, for example, the police for a range of reasons. They might not trust them. Specifically, they will really not trust them um, if they're um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, LGBTIQ, um, and so on, um, and for very clear and understandable reasons. Um, similarly, we see that on campuses, students uh, really weren't reporting sexual violence and harassment to the university. And many universities simply didn't have a good uh, um, way for students to report or what they had was um, in fact detrimental and so what universities have really done over the last five years is try to um, change those reporting pathways to make them victim survivor centered to make them trauma informed because often reporting reporting to the police reporting to the institution can re-traumatize victim survivors so that is was really the focus of a lot of the universities. And the other thing was um, implementing um, different programs. Um, so most universities implemented a program called Consent Matters, which was a one-off module. Anyone listening who's been to uni in the last few years probably did it. Um, and um, that, that was kind of some of the initial response. And then some universities have gone further to do other programs, um, like the program I've been evaluating. AAA, which um, is a uh, resistance program for women. Um, but really what I found in my research is that there's no kind of consistent approach across Australia. And some universities have done a lot more than other universities. And that's not because the staff doing this work aren't amazing. They are, but they'll often maybe be the one staff member um, in, who's part of what are often called safer community. Um, and they'll be, a, they'll be part of the response um, pathway. Um, they're a team or sometimes not a team, sometimes an individual, um, who's tasked often with um, support and supporting victim survivors when they report. But if that's just one person um, working on that, and perhaps they're also a counsellor, perhaps they're also doing um, equity and diversity and another role in the uni, they're very overworked, they're very burnt out. And so while some unis have tried to respond um, often that response has fallen on um, the shoulders of one or two workers um, and has has faced difficulties along the way yeah for sure and it really makes it difficult to grasp the complexity of these situations as well um, and that's why I definitely wanted to focus on you know in the article you describe how survivors are still not really being centered in the conversation to end uh, this sexual violence and harassment on campus and um, obviously, that's complex, you know, with, you know, preventing the re-traumatization of these survivors. But to me, and I think what we even see in many workplaces now is it kind of feels almost very bureaucratic where it misses a lot of the complexity of the situation. And it also makes it feel very clinical by detaching survivors or people with lived experience um, 
And so why should survivors be involved in making this change and what does that involvement look like? Yeah, that's such a great question. And, yeah, thanks for prefacing that with, um, you know, if they want to be involved because, you know, there's so often advisory, you know, advisory groups with victim survivors or, you know, interviews or research with victim survivors um, and then it kind of goes nowhere and they feel exhausted they feel like they've been consulted too much and nothing's um, followed through. So I think, you know, the first thing is to follow through what um, the findings are when they are consulted. Um, That would be great. But, you know, victim survivors are experts in their own experience and they're experts um, in sexual violence and harassment, unfortunately. Um, And so they have, um, can draw from their own experience, but also from being part of communities of victim survivors and understanding, um, what others have experienced that gives them um, insight and support and networks. So I think that victim survivors are, you know, are incredible in the advocacy they do uh, and are incredible in how they approach this issue, which is, you know, staunchly and fiercely um, because they don't want this to keep happening. So their agenda is, 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 it might not be the same as, as an institution, their agenda is going to be to end um, what is an absolute epidemic of sexual violence and harassment Um, and so victim survivors uh, bring that passion and bring that dedication to um, prevention and to ending this Um, so that's you know also why they should be consulted Um, and yeah I think also unfortunately currently they have many negative experiences if they report to an institution for example Um, and so they unfortunately have insights into what what shouldn't be being done um, which is absolutely invaluable for um, victim survivors in the future um, to to learn from the negative experiences that victim survivors are have had previously and are unfortunately at many institutions still having. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I wanted to retrack a little bit because you mentioned earlier, you know, universities are missing uh, addressing this obvious power dynamic that uh, comes up a lot within different relationships, either with teacher-student or um, that kind of stuff, you know, how, I guess my question is, how could that be addressed or what what sort of changes in policies and practices could the unis bring in to really analyse that kind of um, hierarchy? Look, the number one issue in terms of um, if, if just putting undergrads aside for a second, um, the number one issue is addressing the over-casualisation of the university workforce. The, the, the issue of casualisation um, is um, across universities and breeds inequality and breeds these power imbalances. Um, so if you're a PhD student and you are also working for someone um, and the work that you have is piecemeal, um, only comes in dribs and drabs and so you're having to um, often um, work really huge hours during semester because you won't get anything when semester's over um, and you're scraping by like if you're lucky on 40 grand which most of us who've done PhDs um, live on throughout the length of our PhD you're in a situation where you need to pay your rent and so the casualization of university workers um, means that you often have to endure things that um, are not appropriate um, are through to um, sexual violence and harassment um, because of of needing to pay your bills, Um, but also because, um, as we know, 
most across institutions, and again, this is not um, only in universities, um, as we saw from, as we see again and again in the research, um, the people who make complaints are often the ones who then bear the brunt of um, the outcomes of that complaint. So in the university setting, um, there's a lot of fear to make um, a case of sexual violence and bring a case of sexual violence or harassment because the repercussions on you might be that you'll never get employed um, you'll be known across the sector as, um, as someone who has made a complaint um, and particularly because we see a gender power imbalance um, across the university as well that goes hand in hand with casualization. And so if you have a big leading professor, uh, who, a male professor um, and, you know, an un, a, a new PhD student, female student, um, you know, who's going to come out um, poorly from that complaint it's going to be her I mean this isn't rocket science we all know this um, so it really means that people don't bring these cases um, so that that is the power dynamics that I'm talking about and addressing that um, and addressing casualization um, I guess for undergraduates um, you know there's the power imbalance um, between students um, you know in that comes from gender that comes from um, all different issues um, and then, of course, within um, the teacher and students as well. And I think really this is the what we're trying to think through constantly is how to change um, structural inequality, how to change um, other ways that uh, power imbalances manifest in our society. Um, and in that university space, you know, what this leads to is often um, victim survivors will drop out of university um, and the perpetrator, um, we saw a case last week uh, in the news from uh, BCA um, and students, female students have dropped out of university and that male student has been allowed um, to continue and has, I think it was about a hundred cases have been brought against mm -hmm. him. Um, correct me if I'm wrong on that. Um, and so the, the implicate, the ongoing impacts of this are massive on, on um, victim survivors' lives. So I think um, addressing power imbalances and structural inequality is, is key to ending sexual violence and harassment on campus and really across across Australia. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's a point that really gets missed a lot when we talk about sexual violence and harassment anywhere. Um, but just to round up uh, this conversation, I'd love you to talk about you mentioned at the end of the article, the National Student Safety Survey findings that are being released on Wednesday. Um, and you say that it's a crucial moment for universities to reassess their commitment to survivors and their communities. Uh, why is that? We see this again and again, and not even just about sexual violence, where a report will be released and institutions um, will say that they're gonna do a range of things and then um, you know, it remains to be seen if those things happen. Universities have made some steps towards addressing sexual violence and harassment on campus, but victim survivors are telling us it's not enough. And so this is an opportunity for us to, um, to see universities really um, commit to addressing sexual violence and harassment and not just to um, doing so because a report's being released, but to do so because we want to end this from happening on campuses. So it's really hopefully a catalyst for universities to um, to commit more resources, um, to commit to building evidence-based programs, um, to funding evidence-based programs, to supporting victim survivors, including um, students, staff, um, and to really taking on board the recommendations that are going to come out of the report. Um, 
and ensuring that they commit also to the prevention. Um, you know, we, we want to have really good response. We want that to be embedded, to be victim-centred. Um, but we also want to start moving towards um, prevention so that we are preventing this before it happens. Um, and that would be, you know, really exciting and important work for the university um, universities across Australia to commit to. Such an important point to make and I'll definitely link to the article in our show notes so our listeners can read it for themselves as well but thank you so much Jess for joining us on Tuesday Breakfast. Thanks for having me. That was Dr Jess Eisen discussing what changes in addressing sexual violence and harassment at universities have made a difference and what work still needs to be done since the change the course report five years ago. You can follow Jess on Twitter at Jess underscore Eisen underscore and read the article on the conversation. If this discussion brought up any uncomfortable feelings, help is always available and you can call 1-800-RESPECT. That's 1-800-737-732 or Lifeline on 131114. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.